Well, we are picking up in Mark, Mark chapter 13, uh, and we'll be spending about 20 minutes together uh, just considering this text in front of us. Uh, and if you're familiar with the gospel according to Mark, if you read it in the New Testament with us last year or you've read it at a time previously, uh, you'll know that at some point Jesus starts talking about the end times, and this is that point. Jesus is going to start talking about the end times in Mark chapter 13. I saw a news article, uh, this is actually, I saw it last year and then circled back around this year. There was a uh, self-proclaimed Christian evangelist who went on record um, predicting the return of Jesus on the 21st of December, 2020, which coincidentally was also his own birthday. Uh, So that was a month and a half ago. Does not appear that he was right. I went to his website just to see if that kind of had ended his predictions. It has not. He's got a ladies' conference coming out soon. He's still releasing all of his DVDs. My favorite DVD that he's released, not because I've seen it, just because I love the title, is Aliens, AI, and the Antichrist. And on the same website where you can find out about the end times, you can also order his favorite coffee roasts, which he cultivates and then sells from his website. So we have this self-proclaimed evangelist who is telling us about the end times, trying to give us a biblical perspective on the end times, so he keeps trying to call the date and call the date, and he's wrong. And this happens a lot. And that kind of thing just makes us kind of shake our heads. We're like, man, that is, that is kind of what, what gives Christians a lot of times kind of a bad name in our culture with these people who keep calling down the judgment. We keep calling the end times, and we see these predictions fall once again. Well, this morning, we're going to be starting, in the next three weeks, we're going to make our way through Mark chapter 13, it's where Jesus talks about the end times. It's called the Olivet Discourse, because he's on the Mount of Olives, and it's where he goes into some detail, some details that make sense to us, and some details that are going to be kind of confusing for us. One commentator said this about Mark 13, it's by far the most difficult passage in the book of Mark. All right, so this is a PhD uh, commentator, and so I just want you to go ahead and temper your expectations. I'm going to be preaching this week, Josh is going to preach next week, and I'm going to preach the week after that, and you're not going to have all your questions answered. That's just not going to happen. It's not going to be this series of aha moments. There are things that are incredibly confusing in Mark chapter 13, but one thing that we can know is that Jesus shared this with his disciples because he wanted them to be encouraged. He wanted them to, to know on some level and to have the confidence on some level that they could hang their hat on the fact that Jesus was coming back. They could look to it with expectation and with hope. And so we should come looking for that same encouragement. In the midst of all of our questions, we should come expecting to be encouraged. So let me read for us Mark chapter 13, verses uh, 1 through 13. You can follow along in your Bible or on your phone, or you can use what we've got printed for you in the worship folder. We find this, it says, and, he, and as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? They will not be left, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. They will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and of rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. 
There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus begins here as his disciples ask him a question, when are all these things going to take place? And he begins a really long answer. And next week, Josh is going to be talking about that famous passage about the uh, abomination of desolation. And then we're going to be talking about the return of Jesus the week after that. Jesus gives them a lot, but he doesn't exactly directly answer their question either. We have Jesus here in verses 1 through 4 as Jesus is interacting with some of his disciples. They're coming out of the temple where he's been teaching. And he looks at the temple. One of his disciples looks at the temple and says, man, what a beautiful temple. This is the temple that Herod had been building over the last 40 years. And it was just, it was one of the famed buildings in the ancient world at that time. Uh, And Jesus then prophesies the destruction of the temple, which then takes place, actually, we find out, uh, in 70 A.D., But he makes that prophecy, and his disciples want to know when and how they can spot it. Like, when when is this going to be happening? What's the sign for when this is going to happen? And Jesus' answer isn't exactly what they anticipate, because as he's looking at this, he's actually going to talk to them not about when to expect it, but what to expect in the midst of it. They want Jesus to tell them, when is this going to happen? And Jesus instead says, let me share with you what it's going to be like. Let me going to share with you what the experience is going to be like up until the coming of Jesus. They're actually not asking about the second coming of Jesus. They're asking a specific question about when will the temple be destroyed? How can we know? And Jesus pivots from that moment, and he begins talking way beyond that. He includes that, but he begins also talking about his own return, his own second coming. Uh, you can think of it this way. It would be, be like if you were... Um, Let's say you're pregnant with your first child and you, you go to your doctor and you just want the doctor to tell you your due dates. So he's like, hey, when are we due? And your doctor says, hey, here's what to expect when you're expecting. Like, well, actually, I, I wanted to know when my baby was coming. He's like, well, you know what you should do? Read this book so you know what this is going to be like before your baby comes. It's actually incredibly helpful information, but it wasn't what they were asking for. And so Jesus is going to give us a lot But for his disciples, you can imagine they're sitting there. They thought it was going to be a quick conversation with Jesus, and it turns into this very long, what's been called a farewell address, the last massive piece of teaching that Jesus shares with his disciples. And what he wants to to share with them is how they can have expectations of what their experience is going to be like, what they're going to hear, what they're going to see, and relationally what they're going to experience. He shares those three things with them in the text, and we're going to run through those really quickly. Because Jesus wants his followers to have healthy expectations so they're not discouraged in the midst of life awaiting his return. And we are some of those same disciples who he does not want to be discouraged while we're waiting for his returns. First, let's talk about what we're told from Jesus. Hey, you should expect you're going to hear things like this. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead 
many astray. Jesus is talking primarily about false messiahs, but also just false teaching and false leaders in general within the church. You think about for the original disciples, the ancient historians have confirmed to us that around the time of 70 AD, as the temple was about to be destroyed, there actually were a lot of voices rising up claiming to be the Messiah, calling out for followers to follow the Jewish Messiah. And so some of Jesus's own followers here would have watched that happen in real time. And so Jesus is preparing his followers that there's going to be these men who are going to rise up and try to take Jesus's family and destroy it and pull them away from Jesus. And we can think about how prevalent this kind of warning is, warning about false teachers in the New Testament. We see it in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 John 4, 2 John, 2 Peter 2, 1 Timothy 6, Romans 16, Galatians 1, Acts 20, and beyond. There is so much in the New Testament about, hey, watch out for false teachers. Watch out for those who will use their voice to try to pull you away. And we remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32 in our, new, in our FBO Bible reading plan. We read this just last month. He was talking to some Jewish converts. He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what do we have Jesus here saying? Expect that before I come back, there are going to be so many voices that are going to press in on you and try to pull you away from the truth, try to pull you away from what will truly set you free, who will tell you things that you want to hear, but they're actually not for your best. You want to hear that I'm back. You want to hear that, that I'm raising up an army. You want to hear that, that your world and your experience is going to be overhauled just the way you had hoped it would be. You're going to want to hear those things. You're going to listen to voices that tell you that. And a lot of those voices are just trying to lead you astray. So for you and for me, we need to understand Jesus' warning to us as followers living here, awaiting his return. We should anticipate that we're going to hear those voices as well. Because what we believe matters. Who we listen to, who we follow, all of that matters because the truth matters. The truth is what sets us free. And so if we're entertaining and allowing voices into our lives that would lead us away from what is true, we're just following headlong into what will enslave us. And so we need, just like the disciples, we need, to have, we need to know the word and we need to expect that what we're going to hear, even under the guise of Christianity, isn't necessarily going to mesh with what Jesus has really said. You and I are being told by Jesus, anticipate for your lifetime until I return, you'll have to do the hard work of discerning. Is what you're hearing matching with what I've said? Is what you're hearing, what you're believing, who you're following, how does it match with what's been revealed to you in the word. So we should anticipate our lives until Jesus comes back are going to require us to know what Jesus has said, to know who he is, to know what he's about, so that we can know then what we're hearing, when what we're hearing matches with it, and when it would lead us astray. And we need to know we're going to hear voices saying things we want to hear. The disciples would want to hear that the Messiah had returned. They needed to ch check that against what Jesus himself had shared with them. You and I are going to hear what we want to hear, and we're going to want to believe it. We have to check it with what Jesus has said. All right, so that's the first, what we hear. We need to have healthy expectations that what we hear isn't always going to match with what Jesus has said, even coming from those who claim to follow and lead on Jesus' behalf. 
Then in verses 7 and 8, Jesus tells us, when you hear of wars and of rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines, but all of this is just the beginning of the birth pains. And so Jesus gives us two big categories. He says, you're going to see social upheaval and natural catastrophe, and you're going to want to read a lot of significance into those. You're going to want to assume that any time a government is overthrown or there's a massive shift in a government structure, that that's the time that I'm coming back, that everything's about to be uh, an upheaval for my sake. Or when you hear about earthquakes or tsunamis or whatever it may be, you're going to want to read into that, that I'm coming in judgment. Because you're going to want to see these things and attach significance to them, and you shouldn't. They are evidence that the world is broken. The world we live in is broken. It needs a true king who will come and make everything right. But Jesus tells his followers, don't read significance into all those things. Those are not the signs that you need to be watching for. Because he knows that that social upheaval is going to draw his disciples. going to be like, this is the time. Our, our king's coming because they wanted a military king. So whenever they think it might be the right time for a military king, they're going to be watching for Jesus. And Jesus says, no, that's not what you need to be watching for. And every culture up until that time and cultures beyond then, have looked at natural catastrophes and been like, that's the work of the gods. That's the work of judgment. That's the changing of the tides. And Jesus says, no, that's not how you're going to interpret the fact that the world is groaning and broken because of sin. And so Jesus pastorally wants to help his followers not get caught up in and get unsettled by waves of civil and natural brokenness that are part of their lives and part of their story. They're evidence of sin, but not necessarily evidence of Jesus' coming. The disciples are being prepared for the task that is being given to them. They're supposed to lead Jesus' family to long for his return, but not to get undone by what they see in the world around them. What we see should cause us to long for Jesus, but not unsettle us. What we experience should push us to want Jesus to come back, but not to be tied up in knots because we look at the world and wonder, how could this not be the moment? So a question for us is how does social or political unrest and upheaval, how does that unsettle us? When we see it in our own nation or when we see it in other nations, what kind of significance do we add to it? How do we let it affect us spiritually? Does it cause us to question? Does it cause us to, in one sense, sometimes when you experience a catastrophe, it's going to try and convince you, or social upheaval, it's going to try to convince you of a new narrative, of a new truth, quote unquote. And then you have to take what you're thinking in light of what you've experienced and what you see and see if it actually matches what Jesus, with what Jesus has said. It's not just leaders who will put voices in our minds. It's actually the way that our minds work when we see things that are broken. We have to check what we think, what we believe, how we're interpreting with what Jesus has said. And then lastly, we have Jesus here telling them, hey, this is what your experience is going to be like, the treatment you should expect. In verses 9 through 13, he says, be on your guard. You're going to be delivered over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You're going to stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand with what you're to say, but whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And he tells them, brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, for the one who, but 
the one who endures to the end will be saved. There in verse 13, he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. That helps us understand all of what he's saying up until that point. Jesus says, there's certain things you need to understand because it's going to help you endure. It's going to help you stay the course. You need to know what your life experience is going to be like between now and my second coming. And relationally, it's going to be hard. Relationally, it's going to be broken. And Jesus here speaks even more specifically, and he dedicates even more time to this particular expectation because this is going to be the hardest pill to swallow. Unless your life is directly affected by a tornado or by a tsunami, uh, by a hurricane, by an earthquake, you will be affected on some level. But unless that's your personal story, it's easy to forget and to move on. But when you experience betrayal by a close friend or by a loved one, when you experience those types of experiences, they're going to last with you and they're going to eat away at you. And so Jesus spends time here focusing his disciples on this because he knows they're going to experience it. He knows for many of us we're going to experience it as well. I mean, think about the original disciples. In Acts 4, Peter and John have this experience. In Acts 22 and 26, Paul has these experiences. In Acts 4, 7, and 13, we have the Holy Spirit giving utterance to these men so they can speak and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Exactly what Jesus said was going to happen happened to them. And if you think about it, how comforting must it have been for for these men who lived in that moment and could look back and remember Jesus saying, this is going to happen. It's hard. It doesn't make it any less hard, but there is a comfort that's found in it. Back in 2008... Liam Neeson's movie, Taken, came out, uh, which kind of changed Liam Neeson's trajectory. He became like an action hero after that point. Uh, But there's this line, I remember watching Taken, the basic story is you have a father whose daughter goes to Paris and she gets taken by human traffickers, right? And so she's on the phone with him as the human traffickers have have come into their uh, apartment and her friend has already been snatched and she's terrified and, and she's under the bed. And so she's on the phone with her dad. And I remember just shocked by what Liam Neeson told her. In that moment, he says, they're going to take you. Then he tells her what to do. I remember thinking, like, surely not, right? Like, that's, that's not what you want to tell her. Like, that's not super encouraging. But I thought back on that movie. I'm like, actually, to tell her that is probably the most encouraging thing you could possibly say to her. You are going to be taken. But there are things that I want you to do because I'm going to come after you. I'm going to come find you. Like for us, we have Jesus saying, this is going to be hard, and it's good if you know it, because I don't want you to be unsettled by it. And I'm coming back for you. I'm going to come for you. And for us, as we think about this, we've had the luxury, most of us have had the luxury of only having to think academically about the things that Jesus is saying here. We haven't had to experience it in that sense. We haven't had uh, a father, our father didn't betray us Our brother didn't betray us, put us up for death. We've not been beaten. We've not been dragged before councils. Academically, we're like, yes, that's important things for us to think about, but we'd love for it to stay academic. And this is not a prophecy. This is just an expectation that Jesus gives to us. That chapter won't last forever for you and me. Whether it's now or whether it's decades from now, Jesus tells us our experience as his followers on some level, we should expect that it's going to have hatred involved that it's going to have persecution involved. And when those things happen, that's when the doubts begin to arise in you and me. Did I do something wrong? Have I lost God's favor? Is that why that's happening to me or to my family? 
Or on the other side, we begin to wonder, is it worth it? Is it actually worth it to follow Jesus considering what's beginning to happen? We have brothers and sisters in other nations that they are having these conversations not academically, but as they debrief what happened last week. You and I have just not had to have the conversations in the trenches. But Jesus wants us to know, at some point, you should expect that these things will happen. And it's not because I don't love you. It's not because I've forgotten you. It's because the world hated me and I poured myself out. You'll be hated for me. And I encourage you to pour yourself out so the world will know more about me. But know for sure, I'm coming back for you. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus wants us to know, you should expect your experience is gonna be like this. And it's gonna be hard, but I'm coming back for you. Because I love you. It's interesting that we have this text while we're also gonna be approaching the table this morning. This table is one of the ways that Jesus, in just a couple days in the story here in Mark, we're already kind of in the Passion Week here in Mark, Jesus is going to institute this sacrament for his disciples. While you're in the midst of a hard season between my first coming and my second coming, I want you to know that I'm for you, that I love you, that I've given myself for you. And so he gives his disciples this sacrament. There's a song that was popular this year. It was by J.P. Sachs called If the World Was Ending. And the the refrain of that song is, if the world was ending, you'd come over, right? Right? Like that was the message of the song. If the world was ending, he was singing to this girl, you'd come over so I wouldn't have to be alone, right? I could face the end if I wasn't going to have to be alone. That's the basic thrust of that song. We have Jesus here saying, I've just told you that things are going to be hard. And they're going to stay hard. And you should expect that it'll be hard. But in the end, I'm going to be with you. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. And so as we celebrate the sacrament together this morning, I want you to be reminded that as we think about the end times, Jesus wants us to endure. He's encouraging us so that we can endure. But we endure as those with hope and with confidence and with joy because we endure knowing how loved we are. And that's what we'll celebrate at the table. We pray for us. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for the time we've had to think on your words here in Mark chapter 13. I thank you for the encouragement and the exhortation that you gave to your disciples, wanting them to know what to expect, wanting them to not be discouraged, not be disheartened by the reality of life after your first coming and anticipating your second. And we need that same encouragement this morning. And so we thank you for your words to us. And we thank you for the celebration that you've laid in front of us this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.